it feels so good not to travel right now. You know, I'll get back there at some point, but my body is just so happy to be, you know, not only in one place and on the precipice of having my own home again, but also to be in a city that completely satisfies whatever juice is left in the well of my wanderlust. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. On today's show, Matt talks to Bill Addison, a new restaurant critic at the Los Angeles Times. Also on today's show, Matt talks with Kim and Tyler Malik, the co-founders of ice cream company Salt and Straw. But Matt, what did you and Bill talk about? Anna, it's exciting times at the Los Angeles Times food desk. And Bill Addison recently joined as one of the two critics covering what many, this writer included, consider to be the richest food city in America, richest being they have great food there. Bill and I talk about his marching orders and how he will navigate the urban sprawl of L.A. What are his marching orders? What is he working on right now? Anything specific? He would not reveal what he's working on as a true critic and journalist would not reveal his sources. Fair enough. But Bill does talk about a cuisine that he's focusing on a little bit more specifically than others, which is the food of the Middle East. He's seeking out homey Syrian and Persian cooking to, of course, go along with the Mexican, Korean, Chinese, Vietnamese, Japanese, Salvadorian, and Californian restaurants the city is famous for. Here's Matt talking to Bill Addison. Bill Addison, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. Oh, great to see you in L.A., your new home. <sighs> home. I love that word now. So you were on Eater's Roving Critic. Everyone who's read about you knows that you you spent almost five years on the road. A lot of people said, oh, yeah, of course, Bill, that's a dream job. But I think I've been living in a hotel for five days in New York, in <laughs> L.A., and it's tough. How did you survive five years on the road? Uh determination <laughs> i don't know um well i gave up my home in atlanta i sold it in may 2017 and i just gave up the idea of having a permanent place to live i'm i'm moving into an apartment in los angeles this week and so it'll be the first time in 22 months that i've had a place to call my own and i'm really excited about what that. are you setting up first what is the first i know people, there's like a bar or a television it's or, funny because it has you, a little bar to it which is you, cool kind of in the renovation it's i really like mid-century modern my home in atlanta was mid-century yeah. modern this apartment is mid-century modern oh, there's nice. a lot of that in, in in los angeles so um i'm just excited my furniture's going to arrive this week there's a chair that i love and i just want to sit in that chair i've forgotten really what it feels like to just yeah sit by a window in that chair so i'm probably just going to curl up and and start staring at my laptop in that chair and this is where your writing is going to happen you, yes. you've already oh man that must feel really good to have a home to write writing is so personal almost it's there i can't you know until it happens okay i won't believe we won't it. jinx it yeah. <laughs> so you are now one of two restaurant critics at the la times i want to just know like, what is your overall job description? I know you will be filing these reviews. You've already filed many, and we'll get to that. But what else are you going to be doing? There's got to be a lot of things to this role. Um, I mean, I should say, though, that the reviews are the the fundament of what we're doing. And I love that. I mean, we're obviously at this moment where, you know, California is not only being watched very closely, it was announced today that the Michelin Guide is coming back and not just re-entering the Los Angeles market after a decade, but covering all of California, a guide to the state. Um, the Chronicle has a new critic, and Soleil Ho, who just published her first reviews very recently. Tejal Rao is here doing her amazingness for the New York Times. And they hired Patricia and I. And... Um, Patricia and me, sorry. Yeah, and then yeah, yeah. yeah. What um, we're speaking, we're not writing. Right, you would exactly. have made that error on the page, <laughs> what, Bill. Okay, um, <laughs> you know that. Don't need to correct your speech. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I think what's interesting at first glance is at this sort of unprecedented moment where you have four new people, brand new people, writing about restaurants in in California. Kind of everyone's different take. Patricia and I are really 
just digging down and doing that yeoman's work of restaurant criticism were both a little, you know, maybe old-fashioned and dedicated to service journalism in that way, which is not to say that Mm -hmm. the culture criticism that Solejo is going to be bringing is, like, so, you know, important to this moment in the conversation and the way that that Tejal digs into people and culture and history and immigration and and the the beautiful ways that she expressed that. Like, there's room for all of it. Um, Certainly because I was a national critic for five years— I will be writing about the country, about the state, but right now with so much happening at the Los Angeles Times, the the number of people on staff like just blowing up yeah. with new a cooking, real investment from your a real order. investment, Doctor really- Patrick Soon Chong, real investment. Um, so you know the most important thing is for us to just get Los Angeles under our belts, and I think after that there'll be a lot more fluidity and flexibility about what we want to be doing. Absolutely. And I I hope I didn't come off and say that it isn't um, a full-time job to review one restaurant a week (laughs) because that is the deadline comes like every couple days. Yeah. I was listening to (laughs) Pete Wells talk about that on your recent podcast. And I was just like, amen, brother, like that, you know, if, if, editors or people think that that one deadline a week is just breezy they are mistaken (laughs) because so much goes into picking the restaurants scouting out the restaurants going to restaurants multiple times going to places that you're not going to making sure that there's a mix of restaurants that you want geographically by cuisine by price tier Mm -hmm. by you know just all sorts of considerations. Let's talk about the yeoman's work. Let's talk about digging into the actual picks and how do you actually pick your restaurants to review? Are you working with the new food editor, Peter Meehan? Um, are you having an open dialogue or are you kind of dictating it and telling Pete, here's where I'm going? Yeah, I mean, I think it's almost something in the middle. Um, it turns out that Patricia and I are both... Um, very earnest, polite people uh, in person. And so there's a lot of, you know, no, by all means, you take that. No, you take yeah. that. And so I think that that we're just very egalitarian in how we're um, divvying things up. And so far, there's been absolutely no stepping on toes. And And Peter Meehan was the 25 and under columnist yeah. writing restaurant criticism for the New York Times for many years. So Peter understands this beat innately and so he's not he's not telling us where to go we we pick our that's stuff. it's really a unique setup i must say having two critics who are kind of covering the same beat versus a 25 and under and the full restaurant critic um does that feel refreshing to you to have this 100 like- percent refreshing and honestly i think for publications that have the means to employ restaurant critics this is the path forward because the moment of kind of dividing cuisines psychologically by what's affordable and cheap or what kind of gets relegated to you know a a specific special (laughs) interest column almost and what the main critic you know may or may not assign stars to but gets the big treatment nope that and that it just doesn't it's particularly doesn't fit in a city like Los Angeles. Absolutely not. It's almost like quantity at scale or quality, sorry, quality at scale. Like you want two quality reviews, which is double the amount for the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun. I mean, I, this is the first time I've been in this situation in the 17 years that I've been reviewing restaurants, but it's so nice to have a sense of solidarity with another person in every way. Like, are you struggling this week with writing? Yes, me too. (laughs) God, are you like eating up to the last minute? Yes, me too. It's so, you know, I'm just, and it's fun because we're so different. We're just different as writers and people and, and um, and it's just, you know, it does feel really refreshing to just have somebody right alongside me with such um, her very own specific yeah. perspective. And it's shown in the reviews that you've had three or four at, at this time of this recording. And, and it really seems like you're carving out what um, your style and your, your writing style. I wanted to ask you about. Los Angeles and kind of brushing up on the, on what's happening here. You've as a roving critic for Eater, you came here often and you wrote extensively about California, but still you you weren't living in Los Angeles. So tell me, what were some of the um, were there any like canonical texts that you consulted? Um, did you do a lot of meetings? Did you talk to people? How did you kind of get ready to be their critic here? 
It's a good question. I had about a month on the ground to be eating um, before reviews, the review machine started up and never stops. And so, of course, you know, I I talked, I know a lot of the food writers in town. So, of course, I, I talked to people, I read, I kind of backtracked. Um, obviously, you know, I've, you know, like everyone else who cares about restaurant criticism in America, I read Jonathan regularly. So I knew where he'd been and I knew what I needed to catch up on from where he'd been and also, you know, where it, what had just opened since he passed away in July. Um, and and so there was kind of a, a gap of what had been covered and it was important to kind of assess what needed to be filled in and what not did not need to be filled in and just kind of left there. And, and I just took it from there. The bottom line is always, it's about eating, just eating, yeah. eating, eating. And just, and really just making those assessments um, day after day. I want to talk about your first couple of reviews. Um, I've been here for almost five days, so I've been able to go to Fiona. Um, I've also been to Tacos 1986. Oh, great. I've been to both. <laughs> um, but why did you pick Fiona? I'm interested. I, I had a, I had, I agree with you. I had a really uh, excellent meal there. And, uh, and uh, Did you go for lunch? I went there for dinner. Okay. Yeah. Great. I haven't been back for dinner yeah. um, since I reviewed the the restaurant. Um, I'm glad you had a good experience. Yeah, I had a good, good experience. Good. Tell me about why, why did you pick that one? Um, well, the restaurant is uh, – First and foremost, it is owned by Nicole Rucker, who is one of the great pastry chef stars of Los Angeles. Um, she is particularly known for pie, which is one of my, like, I have kind of this handful of obsessions, a lot of which I wrote about for Eater because I was just able to, had the privilege of indulging them wandering around the country for so long. Um, but um, also, it's an interesting collaboration with Sean Fan, who um, is a chef who's had his own restaurant here and brings uh, his own very specific um, background um, to the menu. There's a beef stew um, that incorporates his Vietnamese American heritage and some other just come other uh, a cool um, toast that he's channeling yeah. Dai toast mm-hmm. um, or Dahi toast, depending on the dialect. I'm still getting that right. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been schooled um, and um, that has curry leaves and, and yogurt on it. Anyway, I just loved the narrative, this story told about Los Angeles. And I guess I should say as somebody who's coming off the national beat to be again a city critic as I was in Atlanta and Dallas and in San Francisco, what I found fascinating was the day that review came out, the response was like, fuck yeah, like Los Angeles like gets this. The Angelinos are like, good pick. We understand. Great. And then the next day, the national media was like, Bill Addison reviews pie for his first restaurant and I was like this isn't a just a bakery and if you read the and I was like Haters. yeah yeah they didn't so, pay for they, what it is they didn't pay for the review they didn't actually <laughs> pay the paywall you get three articles don't you I don't know so anyway I just thought that that was a fa- and that wasn't everyone I'm yeah. you know I'm generalizing but that was sort of the reaction that I noticed on social media and it made me laugh because I was like would I have done that would I have reduced somebody's work to like you know um, two words. So anyway, but Los Angeles gets it, and that's and what that's what's important. You're yeah. serving your 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 readers, your your online readers. You're serving the or- Orange County, the the paper that hits the doorstep of Orange County. <laughs> yes, you know, we were we will be reviewing more in in Orange County. Absolutely, I see. It, it's I interesting. I've been coming. thinking about who you write for um, because L.A. is such a, a it's a bunch of suburbs. I mean, that's just kind of how I, I envision it as a New Yorker. Yeah, but that is how you'd envision it as a New Yorker. I yeah, lived in, yeah. in Sunbelt cities most of my adult life. <laughs> yeah. Atlanta and Dallas and um, so I'm like I love sprawling cities this is home to me so I'm never leaving here I don't think Uh, oh okay yeah yeah it's like my forever home I'm feeling it let's talk about tacos 1986 I actually it was raining and I was lucky because I I only waited for like five minutes but then I looked on Instagram and it was like a line Aziz Ansari shows up like the couple hours after me oh wow like, yeah okay. oh i missed that interesting Inter- so so <laughs> so he can uh, appear at, in taco stands now it's like okay to, to instagram aziz i guess um but tell me why i picked that place it's a really unique um setup it's in koreatown it's not in a traditional mexican neighborhood but why pick that place um i think it was 
such a fascinating glimpse for me into how um, the food mechanisms work in Los Angeles right now. Like it got a lot of attention on social media. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to check this out. You know, how is it? And then I, I thought, well, not only are these tacos like really righteously good, but this guy, um, Jorge Alvarez Tostada, who goes by joy, um, or El joy, like is just a character. He's a preening character. And in a way that having, you know, eaten at a lot of taco joints over the years in Los Angeles. I had never encountered anyone quite like him. And so it just seemed right to kind of, you know, frame a portrait of this place at this moment. And it's part, and that's like really the gold tradition, which is like picking um, a taco uh, cart or stand or restaurant every five reviews. It feels like that's just the beat. That's the rhythm, the metabolism of the LA Times critic. Yep. And I'm happy to embrace that. I believe in it. It's so cool to see you following the tradition. (laughs) It's it's smart. I mean, I I respect it. So that's at six and Western, right? Yes. So in a mall. I love it. So you got to go there. Listener six and Western or it's more. Smorgasburg on Sunday mornings in Row DTLA. Let's like okay. talk about how great Smorgasburg is. Yeah, I, I personally I do not go to the one in New York. I don't think I've been there in like literally ten years. But what Zach Zach Brooks has done with Smorgasburg, Los Angeles, I go there every single time I come to LA. Talk about always it. something new. Yeah, always something that I'm looking at. It's so nice to see um, Pancho's Clayudas there as well. There's some barbecue that's happening there that I'm excited about. So, yeah, it's really um, a very smartly gathered group. Yeah, Pritos Los Palmas. Chefs. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I love it. So tell me, um, I want to know about, like, your mission right now, um, continuing the weekly reviews, but you said you want to go to Orange County a little bit more. How far out are you going to go? Out in, like, what is Los Angeles? Right. I think... Is Palm Springs Los Angeles? Because we could talk about Palm Springs food. Sure, which I actually don't know that much about. I have spent exactly one night in Palm Springs in my entire life. Um, and that was on the Eater Beat last year when we were doing a guide to California. So I would say, honestly, um, that everything is fair game. In California, you know, the the company that now owns the Los Angeles Times is called Mm -hmm. California Times. And so, again, you know, it's for me, first of all, it's funny because I traveled because I, you know, and I started the eater job in March 2014. I was traveling like five days a week, three weeks out of the month. And by the time it ended and and this was understand like this is just what like this job happened to me my editors didn't tell me to do it i didn't do it intentionally i just like got lost on the road yeah and so i was gone almost full time and um it feels so good not to travel right now like good in a way that i i could not have expected so i'm flipping through instagram and we all, we all do our performative travel posts there. And I'm like, no FOMO, no FOMO. Don't care. Don't care. Go. Good for you. Have fun. Great. Um, and then I'll, you know, I'll get back there at some point. But my yeah. body is just so happy yeah. to be, you know, not only in one place and on the precipice of having my own home again, but also to be in a city that completely satisfies whatever juice is left in the well of my wanderlust and there's extensive wanderlust in your future but you're here for the near future yeah and there's so so much i mean and it's just like so satisfying to be you know just google any cuisine and be like okay so there is one restaurant here let's talk about that i wanted to ask you um in terms of a cuisine or two in la that you really um maybe have been surprised that there's a there's a community there or just maybe on just like your your tick list where you want to go and dive into we know korea mexico we right. have these like tent poles yeah it's and you could write about yeah. that all day the but what regional are, cuisines of china that have been course. here for so long yeah i am really really interested in the foods of the middle east and so i am slowly kind of finding my way around those in this city they exist here i see a lot of repetition and so i'm i'm a little um, 
Yeah. You I'm, feel a lot of repetition because right. you go to these restaurants and that's a like you just said something that a lot of people don't realize. Like you feel the repetition. Yes. And you feel uninspired and you have to skip these restaurants. Yeah. Because I'm wondering like, you know, it's sort of yeah. the same thing, I guess, honestly, as a corollary to what Pete was talking about a few weeks ago about the Korean restaurant he did where, you know, you dig in and you're like, OK, well, this one does a good stew. This one does good barbecue. This one does good banchan. You know, I'm like. Okay, this one may do good, you know, fried kibbe, and this one will do good Jordanian mansaf, maybe, and this one, you know, will do some. I don't know. I want to mm-hmm. find like more homey Syrian dishes, but I don't. I'm uh, and um, okay, and Iranian Persian dishes, yeah. but I'm having a hard time finding those in restaurants. So we'll see. Do you drive or do you take Uber? Oh, I drive. You drive most so- every time. I mean, if I'm going to a tasting, I don't actually. I don't. I like to drink, but I don't drink that much on reviews or in general right now because I'm I'm in Los I'm in Southern yeah. California. I'm trying to like stay fit. What about um, speaking of like alcohol and like avoiding it and maybe moderate? Do you do you indulge in um, CBD and marijuana? Uh, do you do you find that part of your? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it could be part of the beat here. Yeah. I have not um, partaken of that professionally yet, but I would be open to it if yeah. there was um, a, a smart reason to. Yeah, I'm no. sure that we're going to see more of that. Yeah. But at the at the moment, it's all just in sort of pop up forms, and honestly, I don't know the legal stuff around that right off the top of my head. So I don't know what's I don't know what's there's down other the pike. things to cover at this. Point, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. But I'm sure it's a moving target. I'm, I mean, the LA Times has covered it extensively and it's yes, great reporting. Right. Um, I had uh, breakfast with Danielle Galarzi, your former colleague at Eater, and yeah. she had this great question, and I, I got to give her credit for it. It's great. So, Bill, you're a white guy. How do you stay woke? Well, first of all, uh, I mean, that's a funny question in that I think the word woke like should be buried, first of all. Maybe that's why she asked. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think that that's it. First of all, that yeah, Sam Sanders of NPR wrote yeah. a great piece about why we should retire the word woke, and I am on that tip. So um, if you're asking how I stay, you know, culturally sensitive, sure. I mean, I feel like the the world is doing it for me, you know, um, and that's, just, you know, I understand the privilege of this position and I'm just going to live up to the responsibility. Yeah. And I think as best as I can. Good answer. I think I'm not going to push you on that because I think it's it is the world is around us and it is taking care of it as well as it can in early 2019. Yeah. But we also have a ways to go yeah, in food always, media. Always. Specifically. Yep. Because we both work in that. So. Yes, we do. Let's talk about just in general. Did you Have you had a favorite meal since you've actually been here a couple months ago? I want to just get that one. Yeah, I have. I actually am not going to tell you what it is, yeah. but I'm going to tell you that you can read about it on April 11th when the new freestanding food section debuts in the Los Angeles Times. That's incredible. What is that exactly? And how has the food section run up until the April 11th date? It got folded into a lifestyle section um, just called Saturday um, in the Cal- in the Saturday paper. Um, and But, you know, I'm excited because this, you know, harkens back to some mm-hmm. real glory days when Ruth Reichel... And Lori Ochoa were the editors of the freestanding food section. And um, and it's exciting, you know, to see it coming back. It's it's deserved. It's Los Angeles. Like it's the center of the culinary conversation in America now. So Mm -hmm. cooking in, dining out like we're going to cover it all. It's Thursdays. Is that right? Yes. Oh, that's going to be on Wednesdays, New York Times, Thursdays, L.A. Times. (laughs) Yep, exactly. Do you feel there's like a little bit of a rivalry just already started? I mean, Peter being here. Um, used to work at the New York Times. I mean, friendly rivalry. I'm sure there's mutual respect. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like we're we're all living up to the we're all striving to live up to the moment that that the that presents itself to us. You know what I mean? Like this is this is a great moment, and we should be um, reflecting how exciting and um, multicultural and energized and um, alive this city is right now the city and and also let's just talk about your readers and their interest and thirst for knowledge about food about dining in and uh cooking in and dining out um well they're very smart and i love that and they i like getting it's been fun to start i haven't been at a newspaper in um 
12 years since I was at the Dallas Morning News. So it's fun to re-engage that newspaper audience. They like to write. And, they, <laughs> you know, and I didn't get too much email at either other than when I had a newsletter and would ask for specific recommendations and people would send them. But um, I like hearing people's opinions yeah. about um, what I'm covering and what I shouldn't be covering. What and sticks how with I should you? Cover. Um, you know, there is a lot. Honestly, I, I'm sorry to, to repeat something, but there is mm-hmm. a lot of interest in people um, more than I would imagine in covering the OC and covering Orange yeah. County. So, and there is a lot down there. It is a trek. Part of me is like, can I just go down like for the weekend and spend it there? But I guess that's because I live on the east side of Los Angeles. But again, that's part of the gig. So I'm going to be getting down there. I know um, Patricia uh-huh. has her eye on some stuff. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that's important is acknowledging the the wealth of culinary cultures here in the the at home recipes you know kind of as as beautiful and iconic a job as Jonathan did sort of um showing Los Angeles who it was through its restaurants i think that there's uh, a way to also show los angeles who it is through recipes that they yeah. can make at home and genevieve co is running that program and it ben like. mims yeah and ben mims yeah. and uh, so between the two of them they're going to get that job done that's great i like to hear that a lot i think we've covered la home cooks a, a bit in taste yep. uh, with several articles in the past two and a half years and i agree you can learn a lot from cooking with people at home with citizens of Los Angeles. Um, so to see that balance on the Thursday section will be really, really nice to see. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about your own cooking because I know you obviously have very limited time to cook at home, but you come from a, a background of a professional cooking. So like you're going to cook obviously a little bit at home. What are you going to make in your new kitchen, <laughs> Bill? You're, you have the, I want you unpack the pots and pans. Yeah. I'm going to, um, I'm going to be a regular at the Hollywood Sunday farmer's market. So great. Yeah. So, Oh, great. I mean, mm. that is just like, wow. And Santa Monica, too. Wow. Sure. And that one is on Wednesdays. Yeah. Is that right? And yeah. Saturdays. And Saturdays. Too, right. Yeah. So because that's the West Side, I'm going to have to like plan a little more. Yeah. That is the reality. Of, it is Los Angeles. And yeah. it is true. Like I, I got here and I was like, of course, I'll drive all over the place. And now I'm, you know, for my own purposes. No, I'll go, you know, I'll drive this this far, 20 minutes or so, but otherwise, you know, I'm just driving for when I eat all over the place. But yeah, I'm most excited, you know, I used to be a pastry chef. And so it's like the fruit that I'm excited about, the like eight varieties of apricots that'll be available and the the berries and the the peaches and the pluots and the, ah, I can't, I'm just excited. Galettes, like, what are you going to make? Tarts? Yeah, I lo- I know this is like this, it sounds prosaic, but I really love fruit crisp. And Nancy Silverton had the best recipe for for fruit crisp. Where I mean, I make kind of a very like nut forward, but let's say okay, I'm making a peach crisp. Yeah. I will. This is a Nancy Silverton trick, but I will um, make brown butter that um, a vanilla bean is simmering in, and then I will take that and. Um, pour that over the fruit and then put the topping on and then maybe like a pistachio kind of topping with like peaches and it's oh, wow so good. peaches are hey they're around for more than like 22 days yeah exactly and they're um yeah right because i <laughs> i lived in georgia for many yeah. years and the the good peaches you know often came from there south carolina and they were gone in a blink gone in a blink and same with uh, new york i mean we get them from there um, are, are you going to host some dinner parties? Probably, I probably will. Yeah, although I think that I'll, I'll more be like the the popular guest who brings a nice dessert to dinner parties. Like it. That's what I'm hoping for. So we've had a couple critics on uh, on the podcast. We've had uh, Pete Wells. We've had uh, Robert Saitima. And so for you, I want to ask. We always have an illustration. We ask all the critics this. We can't obviously show your face. How should we illustrate you? Ah. Uh. You put this question to me, and I did not come up with a satisfying answer. What you know? What? Oh, I'm a Maryland guy. I love crab. Illustrate me with a crab, a blue crab, a Maryland blue crab. I love that, Bill. <laughs> I'm a little crabby sometimes, so that's. <laughs> I was going to say I was going to go there. <laughs> it's okay. Go there. Predicts are thinking crabby. Bill Addison, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much, Matt. 
Tyler and Kim Malik, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. This is exciting. Well, I just must say I'm a huge fan of what you do. I've been to your your, your locations in Portland and, and in LA mm-hmm. and I love Larchmont <laughs> Village location. Aww. Like is that that was your first location outside of Portland, right? Yeah, it was. It was funny because we were doing um, a little um, kind of collaboration with Joan, Joan's on third, and um, someone suggested we go around the city and kind of get to know some different neighborhoods because um, we were getting a lot of requests to open a store there. And I remember we turned down Larchmont Avenue and it was like beautiful tree-lined streets and people out shopping and it felt like our, our people. So we one thing one, led to the next, and, and a we, wonderful bookstore right next door. Yes, it is. Magazines out on the, you know, street, just kind of like old school. It's it's old school. I love it. I want to ask you. Own now. I think there's twenty some odd locations, um, in five cities and growing. It's probably more. What goes through your head every morning when you wake up? For me, I think um, I get to be with the ice cream every day. And so, um, I, I really, I focus on, um, I think just channeling, uh, the, the creativity as much as possible and making sure that my team is kind of just constantly working on uh, the right projects. So I get to work with my R and D team, you know, spend the first two hours of each day with them, talk to them about what flavors we're working on, taste through everything. And the beauty is that we're to the size where we can actually test flavors, you know, a hundred different times before we actually put them out and publish the recipe. And, there's just like this this creative process that's so um it's become methodical in a really beautiful way uh and i think that's what has really it's it's inspiring in in this really interesting way that you would never expect <laughs> but there's like some jazz to it too right like you say oh, methodical but there's it's like art right absolutely yeah we've set up the foundation for us to uh really you know especially when we're working with partners or working with other uh food industry or industry yeah. folks you know it's a uh, we get to bounce ideas off of them and just like just jam and we get to you know pass ice cream back and forth test get their feedback uh play around with different flavors. That's awesome. What about you? What do you think about? Uh, you know, we were just um, in L.A. last week, and someone from the entertainment industry um, said a quote that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and that's, you know, how do we make sure that we're worthy of our audience? Mm-hmm. And I love that quote, and I, I think that is what I think about every morning when I wake up. And I think about, you know, we've been really fortunate to have um, – a great following in the cities that we're in and become sort of a community gathering place in those cities. And we have an amazing, we have a tribe of 500 employees now. Um, and I want to be worthy of their life's energy that they show up and, and dedicate to this cause, um, on a daily basis. And then all these artisans that Tyler's talking about, um, you know, how do we make sure we carry that torch forward in a way that's true to them? So I feel it's just a, just such a great honor, and and I, I I feel really lucky and fortunate. They're great employees, and I can't say oh. that about all um, food retail. I think that you've got, especially the, I remember the Venice location. I this guy was just so memorable to me. I just still think about it. Like he was just so kind and cool, Aww. not just with samples because that's like obviously any ice cream place gives samples, but just like thinking about this like service. He had really yeah. good service. Like it, yeah, it's so fun. I mean, I love serving ice cream and i think that's there's just this enjoyment um Mm. i think our team you know as long as we're taking care of them and we're providing this kind of fun safe place for them to work there's a there's this dynamic between our servers and our guests that just uh, it's explosive and it creates this this journey like you were saying uh, tasting through all the flavors but more than that like creating this really deep connection with your we just got a note. So we just opened um, not too long ago in downtown Disneyland, which I can't <laughs> believe those words come out of my mouth. It's kind of amazing. And in Anaheim? In Anaheim, oh, California. Man. And we um, got a note just a couple days ago from a customer who wrote in to say that she drove um, for several hours to get to Disneyland with her kids and the park was shut down for a private event. And so she brought her kids who had tears in their eyes into our shop in Salt and Straw and the person that helped them she went on and on about what an incredible experience he turned it into for the kids and she said they left skipping and smiling and asking when they could come back and I had tears in my eyes reading that story but yeah. those kind of connections are what 
you know, what makes me think we could be on the right track. And I feel really, mm-hmm. I love the people we work with. Yeah. It's incredible. And Kim, you have a really cool background. You worked at Starbucks first as a barista, but then later in corporate when Starbucks had like 30 cafes. <laughs> it's tiny. Wow. Yeah. Tell me about that. How, how did that inform um, what you have done with Salt and Straw as a business? And we talked a lot about hospitality in that term as well. Yeah. I So I started when there were 30 stores. And um, I remember when I graduated from college, um, I got a job in the quote unquote corporate office. It was a tiny <laughs> little um, one floor building at the time. And my parents felt sad for me because I didn't get a very good job out of college. I kept saying, no, this is going to be big someday. And um, this guy, Howard Schultz, really is onto something. And I think um, one moment I remember working there that really informed how I approached um, Salt and Straw was um, we had a store meeting. And I remember Howard Schultz showed up to that meeting and I was a barista and he just was telling us with every cell of his being, um, you know, how important the work we were doing and, you know, where the coffee came from and what role we wanted to play in the world. And I could tell like this was up to us to bring this to life. And I wanted to carry that on to the people I work with and and make everybody feel like they're part of something bigger. Um, you know, he was the first company to offer health insurance to part-time employees and and um, offer you know, stock options to baristas and just really generous from that perspective. And so we also, when we wrote our business plan to start the company, set it up that way so that the team could be part of the success and, and um, really have have it be a people-centered business. Let's talk about the origins. You write in your new cookbook about uh, the moment you decided to open your own retail operation. You went to a Goodwill. You spent $16 on four ice cream makers. Tell this story. It's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I love this story of when we first started. I think the dream was to figure out how do you make ice cream in the first place? And uh, for me, I was a, I'm a culinary school dropout. So I, I've played with a few different ingredients. But uh, at the end of the day, there's ice cream. It's so accessible. It's surprisingly easy. Um, you take cream, sugar, and freeze it together. And if it freezes, then it's ice cream. If it doesn't, then it's sweet soup, mm-hmm. um, which is still delicious. doesn't uh, sell as well, though. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's the, the science behind it is interesting, but the, the at the end of the day, making ice cream, it should be freeing. And um, so... Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I think it scared so many people away, ice cream making in general, that now you can go and you, you see these ice cream makers on at Goodwill at, everywhere. Uh, <laughs> and they're so they're also we, very cheap to buy on Amazon too. They're like right. twenty one dollars. Yeah. Yeah, and you just, you pre freeze it, yeah. you can make one batch a day, and that's sometimes all you need. Uh, and that was that was fun for us. So we uh, when we first started we got to make uh, four flavors a day. Because <laughs> then you have to let it freeze overnight yeah. again, mm-hmm. um, and uh, just redid it over and over again. Um, just tested, you know, hundred different flavors uh, as we were kind of coming up with what what a dream menu might be, uh, and that was that was it. It was it was trial and error, and it was just like getting to it, which I, I love. Tyler was amazing, though, because I remember before he showed up with his um, ice cream makers to start making ice cream in our kitchen, um, he was testing recipes at home north of Seattle and sending me um, all these ideas that he was coming up with. And I kept saying, you know, first of all, I'm not going to bring my family into this crazy idea because what if it crashes and burns? And secondly, you don't know how to make ice cream. And <laughs> I really need someone who does. And so um, after receiving, I mean, I don't know, I probably 50 different recipes that he was testing. He said, I'll just come and help run errands. That's I just want to help start the company. And he showed up. And of course, we quickly realized he's really good at making ice cream. Uh, clearly. I mean, <laughs> but has this family connection helped? I mean, it helped like solidify this business? I mean, has it? Is it, or is it, is it as if you were friends, would it be the same? I mean, it's kind of funny to me. I, I think it comes down to a lot just values. I mean, I don't mean to sound too grandiose here, but it, I can't tell you the number of times when Tyler shows up in the morning and he says, you know, I've been reading this and this article about something we can do, and I've been reading the same article that night. And so we're very like-minded from that perspective. But at the same time, you know, he works on coming up with ice cream flavors, and I work on negotiating deals with landlords. Yeah. <laughs> I always say I, I pulled 
the short end of the stick. But um, what I mean by that is that we have such very different focuses within the company that mm-hmm. it works really well. And um, it, it, Tyler probably has the least ego I've ever met, oh, nice. which I think contributes to his ability to collaborate and be really creative in an unusual way, but also just a really good business partner. So if you're looking for a business partner, look look for that, I'd yeah. say. And clearly defined roles, I think, is definitely something that you want to have in a business yeah. partnership, too. Uh, JJ Good and I, your collaborator, mm-hmm. well well known food writer and contributor to taste, a hero <laughs> to many. We were emailing last night. I was like, I got the the guys, the, the team coming in, and he's like, I'm like, what should I ask? And he said, ask Tyler to make an ice cream flavor on the spot. Ah! Oh yeah. So what is this? This is Help. a fun game. Play this game. Let's do it. <laughs> um, well, this is so th- we invented this game when we uh, I first started going to elementary schools, which we we go every year. We and spend hours and hours with each of the elementary schools near our, our shops. And then they invent flavors that then we feature in our shop. And then the proceeds go back to their school. So it's this like really cool, like cyclical. Yeah, it's the most amazing menu of the year. So we started um, this game where we actually say, like, let's let's crowdsource some ideas. Um, so we kind of had to do that, which I don't know. Do you want to try? Should we try it? Let's try Can you, it. Do you have an ingredient? On it? Me, you should come up with. Okay, one. I'm too let's, close to it. Why not? What do you What do you want me? What do you need yeah. from me? How about um, just three, three. Let's start with one, one ingredient that just like you Pops love. This is really just popped in my head. I didn't prep this. I okay, okay. Kombucha. Kombucha. Yeah. Ooh. Mm. Okay. Uh, do you have a second? Do you want? Yeah, one? definitely. Uh, peanut butter. Kombucha and peanut butter. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, one more? You need a you third? Want one more? Yeah, let's yeah. Let's do tropical fruit. So let's mm. do pineapple. Okay. Mm. Cool. I like this. Um, so I would, I, you know what I love? Like, have you had kombucha with some of the, like, the warming spices? Like, I think we could do that. And if we, like, baked that into the pineapple and made almost this, like, pineapple, like, um, jelly or jam um and then like we could get some really cool tropical spices in the peanut butter and make a base out of that base ice cream like um Mm. i don't know something that uh like thai basil almost or something like that or like uh kefir lime in the base and like get that like spicy profile to marry with the like that tart acidic kind of funky pineapple i'm buying let's do that isn't that fun Yeah. Tropical fruits and peanut butter is yeah. the worst combination, but <laughs> no, it's yeah. I think uh, JJ had some harder ones. I think yeah. I can't remember when we played this game. It's so fun. I love that game, and it's so cool that you you can do that with with kids because it really gets kids into making ice cream. Let's segue yeah. to the book a little bit. Okay, perfect. Um, because I think making ice cream is what you want folks to do with this cookbook. I must say I, I'm I'm very objective about this opinion. Even though we were here at Penguin Random House and, and are making your book. I think there's a lot of ice cream books sure. out there. I mean, yeah. you, it's no no secret. So how is this book going to separate itself from all the other books out there? We wanted to go in a very, very different direction when we started writing this book. I think my dream was to um, – I think the, the story that you told about the Goodwill was a perfect example. I, there's a lot of people that will get a book and get an ice cream maker and they think, you know – I'm going to make all these recipes. And there's something terrifying with how most ice cream recipes are written. Um, and in reality, it shouldn't be that way. Um, really, like I said, like cream, sugar, melt it together, uh, put it in a freezer. And that's ice cream. And that's that's so just like freeing to think that there's there's not much rule that shouldn't be many rules around this. Um, and so I we really tried to like we tried to play with that accessibility in how we wrote the recipes, how we really like put forth uh, how we think about a foundation of ice cream and then start integrating some of the science so that it can, re- you can really start like learning about the ingredients around you and start really getting inspired by how and to use the, that. On the note of science, you write about um, the secret superhero of ice cream is. Mm. Yeah. So we use a few different ingredients, I think. Um, and our trick is in the base recipe, we we actually create a foundation, almost like a, I create it, I think of it like a soup stock, um, right? Like you can make chicken stock, you can make ice cream base. Uh, and so 
with that like that soup stock or this ice cream base, uh, you can make a hundred different flavors. We use one ingredient in particular that I really really love in this. Uh, it, it's it's kind of scary because it starts with an X. Uh, it's called xanthan gum, um, but it's actually it's a form of cornstarch basically, uh, and it's really easy to cook with. It's easy to like mix into your ice cream, and it uh, what it does is it allows like. It's, it gives us some forgiveness in our recipes, so we can be a lot more uh, creative, and you can make a lot more mistakes when you're making your ice cream. And Kim, I wanted to ask you about ice creams as a kid. I know Aww. it's like there's so many memories we have about ice cream as children, and I think you're informed by them clearly with this business because you're very kid-friendly, obviously. What were some of the ice cream brands that you really remember and recall as a child? You know, it's so funny um, that you should bring up the letter X and talk about children because my partner and I adopted three children a couple of years ago, and my five-year-old was just studying the letter X, and it does get a bad rap. (laughs) And um, it leads me to to think about how... um, just the experience of going out for ice cream with my family now having children has totally changed how I think about even owning this company because um, it creates those memories that are like none other. I mean, I was standing in our Venice shop um, the other day and I was un- I was blown away by how many teenagers were standing in line with their parents. I'm like, where do you see teenagers doing something with their parents? And And I, for me, back in Billings, Montana, that was... Baskin and Robbins. I mean, we would get to go out for ice cream and, you know, it made the challenging times better and the good times, you know, a celebration. So it was, it was, I, I can still remember those moments. Baskin Robbins was your one. How about Billings, you? Billings, Montana. Yeah. How about you? What was yours? Well, mine was also, Bas- also Baskin Robbins. <laughs> <clears throat> but we got to, um, I remember when I was in fourth grade. And it took me a while to remember, like, have this memory. Like, I think there's three years after we started the company. Uh, I, when I was in fourth grade, we got to tour and we got to go into the back freezer of the Baskin Robbins. And I, I twirled around (laughs) and I was like, the guy, this like franchise owner was like, I get to eat all the ice cream I want. And I was like, (laughs) shut up. <laughs> and so that was my a dream for that full year of being a fourth grader to own an ice cream shop one day. Be um, careful what you wish. For. I know. Do you have yeah. any connection to like ice cream royalty? I think of like Ben and Jerry's or any of the the major figures in American ice cream history and culture. You know, our grandmother is probably our biggest connection. To, I mean, we use so many of her recipes in our um, in our in our recipes, and and always have a connection to her um, through a lot of what's brought us together in the early times as we were coming up with our um, flavors. But no, we're just blazing our own trail. You know, we're West Coasters, so we don't have those connections like you. you okay, so let's let's get to the West Coast, East Coast thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's more just selfish for me. You clearly have a real focus on the West Coast for your for your shops and your locations. Are you selling pints though around the country? That's that's happening. Yeah, so you can order pints online. Um, it was funny. We had a reporter um, from the Wall Street Journal while we were still a cart who said she wanted to do a review of our ice cream but we had to sell nationally in order for her to do the review. And Tyler and I were like, what does that even mean? And she said, well, you know, maybe mail order, you could ship it. And we've been doing that ever since. <laughs> she said, you have three weeks to come up with this business. And so that was the launch to our mail order business. And <gasps> that's we've done so it ever fascinating. Since. <laughs> I, I love the honesty. And that's sometimes reporters will bring a great idea to the <laughs> we, we stumbled into it and we've been doing it ever since. And yeah. um, despite our best efforts, it's um, it has quite a following. And people, I think it's amazing you can ship ice cream in the mail. It doesn't seem right. Yeah. So I, we do that. And and you can buy pints in New York um, at the Meadow. So Mark Bitterman um, owns the Meadow, and we um, use his salt in our sea salt caramel ice cream. So there's a connection there. Um, and then um, at Daily Provisions, you can get ice cream, oh, nice. which is Danny Meyer's shops. So. Yeah, and uh, Danny's an investor in your company. Yes, too. we love Danny. Yeah. Okay, so but what about opening a, sh- a shop in New York? <laughs> what about that? I mean, it's so cold you're here. You're here in New York right now, and it's probably not just to do a podcast interview. Are you looking at locations? We we so you know I just said we have I have three little kids in yeah. in Portland. So we're I mean for us we're, we're still a pretty small company. We've been around for seven years now, and this experience that we offer in our shops is so important to us. And taking a huge leap across the country would mean you know making sure we could 
hold that up and bring our best game forward. So um, the other thing that's weird about us is every city we go to, weird in a wonderful way, mm-hmm. is uh, every city we go to has its own menu. And so that's sort of a limiting factor in terms of how fast we can grow. Absolutely love that uh, concept. Um, I feel Shake Shack is similar. Yeah, they do they some have, of that too. They, they have that model, and I think it's actually really important when you're scaling to have some kind of connection to the community. Um, and I appreciate that. So you're in five cities now. So each of these five cities, just one example of a, of a unique uh, menu item oh. in one of these cities. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, they basically have completely different menus in each city. Uh, and it's really cool because uh, it creates this um, – when you visit a shop in Seattle versus Portland versus San Francisco, it's going to be a completely different experience. So uh, in Seattle, we get to work with uh, Beecher's Cheese, um, and we make a flavor with them that's just like – it's based off of their uh, green peppercorn uh, flagship cheese that's like insane. Um, whereas then in Portland, you'll get to learn about maybe the – Local strawberries and one of the this uh, really cool uh, honey balsamic maker nearby. Whereas then in San Francisco, you get to learn about this uh, you know bean to bar chocolate maker dandelion. Um, so it's when you go into each of our shops, I think you get this. Um, it's a journey through the city, and we almost get to use our ice cream like a pedestal to to like preach those beautiful stories. It's really a smart idea. Last question. I want to know, um, I'm opening the book, what is the first recipe I need to tackle? Mm. We debated a lot on this. Um, The first recipe you'll see in the book is going to be our olive oil ice cream. Um, And it's one of those flavors that it, it honestly, I think it's, it's an easier flavor than vanilla even. In the sense that it's olive oil with cream, sugar, you mix it all together and you put it in a machine. Uh, And it's beautiful. Uh, The science, you can either get really heavy in the science or you can use no science whatsoever and and it'll still like work out. And what's the texture of uh, olive oil ice cream? Oh, it's velvety. It's got this, uh, like the combination of multiple different fat profiles actually creates a... um, uh, Like it's it's this chewiness, this this texture that almost... um, it's like velvet, you know? It's beautiful. Let's it's spring now, but and it's like going into summer and we're thinking it's like ice cream season, but I like fucking reject that. <laughs> Please tell me that there is no ice cream season. Explain to our audience that there is no ice no, cream season. There's no ice cream season. I think you know, for us, we change our menu every four weeks and we, we really we live and die by that code. Uh and Every month that you come into Salt and Straw, it's going to be a completely different menu based off of what we feel is important in the uh, city around us. And so that means that, you know, in February, we're going to have we, we're fortunate enough to have lines, but it's because there's a brand new story about, uh, you know, all these different chocolatiers in the city. Or in November, you get to taste through Thanksgiving flavors all in one, you know, one scoop of ice cream. Uh, so it's. This like this this tempo this uh, this excitement in uh, the menus that we bring forth I think really kind of shatters that mold. Tyler and Kim Malik, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Oh, thank you. So fun to be here. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Studio recordings by Pat Stango. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>